Welcome to the DTB podcast for October 2023, volume 61, number 10. Uh, my name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Thank you once again for joining us for our podcast, uh, in which we'll discuss the content of October's issue of DTB. Um, just one thing to start with, over the last few months, we've been following the fate of Australian prescriber journal. Um, this is a publication that we've had close links with over the years. Uh, DTB and Australian Prescriber were founder members of the International Society of uh, Drug Bulletins. But late last year, early this year, changes to the funding arrangements for the publisher of Australian Prescriber meant its future was looking uncertain. But as we highlighted earlier this year, it has now got a new home with uh, the Therapeutics Guidelines Organisation. Um, and just an update says it started publishing content again. Its first two issues are uh, now online and it's it's good to see it back. I'll include a link to its website in the notes that accompanies podcast. If you want to check out Australian Prescriber, you'll be able to find a link there. Um, and just one thing, I think as a footnote to the last time we mentioned Australian Prescriber, I think it was ahead of the ashes and I predicted a series win for England. Well, had it not been for the pesky rain in Manchester, I think I would have been correct. <laughs> so, yes. James, anything you'd like to talk about um, or even make a prediction about the Rugby World Cup? Oh, goodness. Will we get out of the group stage? Um, not as things are at the moment, but who knows? Sometimes I remember the World Cup after we'd won it and uh, we had a terrible start and we went on to get into the final. That was an interesting, interesting World Cup. So who will know? Who knows? Um, but lots of interesting stuff to look forward. And of course, we've also got this edition of DTB to look forward to, which is starts off actually, I think, with your editorial, David, um, taxing ill health. What do you want to tell us about this? Well, I thought it was time to have another look at kind of call it a silly situation that we have that the NHS in England is the only health system across the UK that still makes people pay for their uh, prescriptions. Uh, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland got rid of prescription charges probably over 10 years ago um, based on an argument that it was an investment in, in people's health. But in England, you still pay, well, you, this year you're paying, was it £9.65 for each item you have dispensed. But I suppose what bothers me most is that, that this is a burden or the burden for paying these charges falls on working age people with long-term conditions. And as we know that you know, many of these will have reduced incomes or reduced ability to work, reduced quality of life. And we know that some of them struggle to pay for their prescription charges. Uh, work done by Prescription Charges Coalition Group, which is a group that's been campaigning for charges to be scrapped for people with long-term conditions, has shown that some people are having to prioritise other household expenses over their prescriptions, so they don't pick up their prescriptions. And obviously the consequence for this is that their health doesn't improve or gets worse. Um, they use more healthcare resources because their health is worse and they're less likely to be able to work. So it really is a, a penalty mm. on people who already have significant problems. So it's really just discussing those issues um, and highlighting, you know, is it time to get rid of them in England? I think you point out in your editorial, actually, the proportion of prescriptions or items dispensed which are paid for is actually quite small, isn't it? Would I think it, you it, point, point out that you know, only 10% of prescriptions. So you think, well, if it's only 10%, why not just get rid of it completely? 
Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, that, that's, you know, there are three arguments I think the government tend to put forward whenever anyone says, oh, time to get rid of prescription charges. One is they'll, they'll flip it around and say, well, 90% of prescriptions are dispensed free um, because of the various exemptions. Second point is they, they always talk about the, the prepayment certificate, but that still costs, I think it's over £110 a year. So you've still got to buy that. Um, and the third point they make is, well, it's, it's revenue. It's, it raises £600 million each year which again sounds a lot in terms of kind of income to the government but it's nothing when you compare it with well the figures i found which was they wasted 16 billion pounds on covid support schemes that, that were lost to fraud and 4 billion pounds on ppe that couldn't be used so yes it's a big amount but it's yeah. in the scale of government expenditure it's not big no no and i think you know dtb has always stood hasn't it, it we, we've always stood with the concept that Prescription charges are iniquitous and the exemption criteria are illogical. Um, and I think it's it's nice just to remind people that that there is this crazy situation with them. Um, and really, I do wonder how much it costs to actually collect. You know, you talk about £600 million income, but what are the costs involved in collecting that, that money? I think last time... A few years ago now, since our last editorial, I think I think I wrote and asked the um, government and the PPA what costs to to actually run the system, but obviously they weren't able to share that or couldn't calculate it. So, but you're right. I mean, it's it's all the bureaucracy that surrounds it, um, and if you got rid of that, again, there would be savings. And, and for me, the other argument is the prescription charges coalition did some work looking at what would happen, modelling what would happen if you did get rid of prescription charges for some chronic conditions. And it, it seemed to suggest that the loss of revenue from not collecting the charge would be more than offset by reduced use of healthcare resources because people would be taking their meds and you know ultimately could get back to work. And, it, and is that not one of the key priorities of this government is to get more people back to work? So, you know, here may be a solution for them if anyone is listening. We shall see. But thank you. Where are we going to next? Okay, let's look at one of our DTB select items uh, this month. And this was a, a, a study that looked at hydroxychloroquine and retinopathy. Yes, I, this, do you know, there's a, I think I've always had a blind spot with hydroxychloroquine. It's obviously a disease modifying. Should you say that? <laughs> <laughs> Did you mean yes, that? Yes, because I think I do. Because I mean, I'm not anymore. But it's one of those disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, which uh, doesn't require as much uh, blood reviews as many of the others, like methotrexate. But it's got this sting in the tail, with it causing retinopathy. And I think because there has been some changes in the guidelines around this, I think it is easy for patients to slip through the net when it comes to having proper retinopathy screening because actually what is advised is that this should happen um, some years into someone starting the drug and therefore it's very easy for patients to to miss out but going back to the actual select article this is a retrospective cohort study that looked at patients over 18 who took hydroxychloroquine for 10 years between 2004 and 2014 and they had about 3,000 patients in in this cohort study. And what they found was that about one in 11 
8.6%, if you want to be exact, after 15 years had developed retinopathy. And what they also found was that depended on the patient's age, whether they had CKD, and also what dose they were taking. And patients on less than five milligrams per kilo per day um, actually had uh, much less retinopathy um, compared to those that were taking higher doses. Um, so it is dose dependent. And I think I'm just looking down to find the numbers, but I think at 15 years, it, the cumulative incident of retinopathy was 2.7% in those patients taking less than five milligrams per kilo per day. But it was as high as 21% in those patients who were taking more than six milligrams per kilo per day. So there's a significant dose dependency as well. So I think it's it's a really useful reminder that one in 11 of your patients out there on hydroxychloroquine are going to develop retinopathy. It could be as high as one in five if they're on a high dose. And we've got to remember that the Royal College of Ophthalmologists suggests you need to do annual monitoring for patients who take hydroxychloroquine for more than five years. And this is not going to your local um, high street optician. They need um, proper retinopathy screening. Um, so I think there's a really useful reminder about that. And it's a sort of thing which I think as GPs, because it's not a regular blood test, but you know, often these patients are under the care of uh, consultants in secondary care. Uh, this can be missed. And I think it's a, you know, if you've got anyone out there who wants to do a simple audit, why not look at all your patients on hydroxychloroquine and check if they've actually either got this reminder in place for five years or are having now regular annual screening. Uh, and I think also that the, doesn't the guidance say that if you are taking tamoxifen or have impaired renal function, you, so your monitoring starts one year after your hydroxychloroquine starts. Yep, absolutely right. Yeah, tamoxifen, impaired renal function and a dose over five milligrams. You should start straight from the word go. So yeah, I think it's a really useful reminder of that really important element of screening that we must do for patients to uh, make sure that we keep an eye on their eyesight, which obviously is... So, so in your area, do you prescribe or is it is it prescribed by special... Uh, shared care in our area, which um, means that, <laughs> I was about to say, we do all the work um, and carry all... I mean, there's a big political issues around shared care. If you talk to any GPs at the moment, um, obviously there's a big shift with ICBs, integrated care boards, to move work out into general practice. And this is sometimes done under the guise of shared care. Um, but yes, shared care. So in theory, we're working with our consultant colleagues, um, but I think we all agree both in primary and secondary care that that, that working relationship needs to become much more integrated and, and better served than it perhaps currently is. And, and in your particular shared care, who does the referral for the regular monitoring? <laughs> or or well, is, that a, is that a can of... I think in fairness to secondary care, they tend to organise this. But of course, you get patients who might move into the area from elsewhere. And that's where I think things can can get missed. So um, a moment is secondary care. But I think, you know, in primary care, you if you're writing the script, then you are responsible for that patient and the effect that drug has on them. So it's up to you to make sure that they have got that in place if it's needed. Indeed, yes. Okay. Um, well, you, you know you've been around too long when 
you're having a second round of battles about shared care moving from <laughs> second, second. I'm, I'm sure we went through this 15 years ago but yeah. um, plus de change plus yes, de change yes. okay thank you for that uh, and let's have a quick look at our main review article this month which discusses intravenous vitamins um, do you want to give a quick overview and why we cover this yes yeah, so we obviously wanted to look at intravenous vitamin injections particularly to focus on this new therapy this idea of wellness that actually intravenous micronutrients can improve your health improve how you feel um, we wanted to look at the evidence behind this including things like Myers cocktail that people may have heard about but our review which is very comprehensive also looks at actually sort of where therapeutic use of uh, vitamins is important, things like Wernicke's encephalopathy and patients who've had significant um, depletion or malabsorption of vitamin B and C follows psychosis or uh, such things. So it's a really comprehensive article. We cover, if you like, the BNF side of uh, intravenous and vitamin supplementation. And then we look at perhaps, if you like, the more uh, paramedical use of intravenous vitamins and the evidence behind them which uh in short very little evidence around we found one randomized double blind control trial of 34 adults um with fibromyalgia that were given um iv myers cocktail which is a which is a sort of mix of different vitamins versus a placebo infusion and what we found was that it was a very strong placebo effect and there was no statistical significant difference between the two groups so it could be as we've always known i think that oral medication has quite a good placebo effect using a needle injection is is um got an even better placebo effect and perhaps putting up a drip is the ultimate in placebo effect that's what it feels like to me anyway I mean, what's, I suppose what surprised me uh, when I first read this article was even looking for justification or evidence for some of the more accepted uses of, of intravenous injections or infusions of vitamins. There's not a lot, not a lot to go on, even for Wernicke's encephalopathy. Um, you know, you're talking about one, one study um, and even there the, the results are not, not clear cut. So little evidence for their mm. for kind of health benefits. But then when you come to look at them for people who haven't got an, you know, an obvious indication for their use, as you say, we couldn't find, uh, find anything. So an expensive placebo? Uh, well, that's how I see it. There are areas of therapeutics where the evidence is paper thin. Now, you might say that we don't need to test parachutes. You know, it's bloody obvious that you need one if you're jumping out of a plane. But you're absolutely right. With vitamins, it's dark arts here. It's very difficult to see there's any evidence for their use as an intravenous mode. You know, the, the matter is, isn't it, for most people, if you've got a well-balanced, healthy diet, you'll get most of what you need um, from your diet. If you do need supplements because, I don't know, you're, you're about to become pregnant and need extra folic acid or uh, you need vitamin D in winter, then there are oral supplements that will do the job. But the intravenous infusions, we shouldn't ignore the fact that there is always a risk isn't there of, of giving somebody an injection giving somebody an infusion they're not they're not without harm um so why would you do it yeah no ex exactly right exactly right there are some very legitimate reasons to take oral vitamins there's some very legitimate reasons to take intramuscular vitamins such as uh, vitamin b12 in pernicious anemia 
but the concept of going and having an IV bag put up has a significant, you know, list of side effects issues, including obviously anaphylaxis, which could be um, fatal. And the benefit really is yet to be demonstrated at all, and, and I suspect won't be. Okay, thank you very much. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com and all our previous podcasts are also available on the website. If you want to get involved with DTB, please let us know. Uh, you can suggest topics for articles, offer to review them, help us write an article, or just leave us a comment on our content. So please email us at dtb.bmj.com. Many thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the November 2023 podcast. <laughs>